This is Typercast from Quantization. Hello, I am Kava Shurinia, and you are listening to Typercast on Quantization. Typercast is focusing on the intersection of type and inclusion. By type, we mean typography, type design, people of the industry, and various writing systems. And by inclusion, we mean areas where we could add more voices and diversity and talk about domains that are usually overlooked or ignored. We are excited to announce Richard Hunt has joined us for this series. He is a typographer and type designer and teaches in these areas. I have known Richard since my school years when he was my professor and he has been a mentor since then. My name is Richard Hunt. My career in typography began with working in type shops back in the 1980s. I subsequently opened my own type shop, and then in 2002, I began teaching typography courses, including typeface design and the history of typography. Bloomsbury Publishing recently released my book, Advanced Typography. For the first episode of the series, we asked Titus Nemet to join us to discuss his practice as a type designer and researcher and talk about Arabic typography. Titus is designing Arabic typefaces for more than a decade. He wrote several articles about Arabic type and also presented at a variety of conferences and events. His book, Arabic Type Making in the Machine Age, is a valuable read for anyone in the type community. Our conversation with Titus comes in two parts, so don't forget to tune in for the second part. This is episode 19, volume 1 of Typocast, Arabic Type with Titus Nemet. Hello Titus, hello Richard, thanks for accepting my invitation and I'm happy that this Typocast series has finally started. It's a pleasure having Titus as our first guest. We have started talking about this project with Titus months ago and exchanged some emails and ideas. But here we are, welcome. Thank you, Uh, thank you very much for having me, thanks for inviting me to Quantization. Okay, and... uh... And thanks for me too. Thanks, Titus, and thanks, Kaveh, for arranging all this. Can you start with a brief introduction, please? I'm currently a um, a research fellow at the University of Reading at the Department of Typography and uh, Graphic Communication, and there I'm uh, pursuing a, a three-year research project entitled Typo Arabic that is funded by a Maurice Glodowska Curie grant by the European Commission. And I'm practicing, like I'm a, I'm a jack of many hats in, in, in that way. I, I do practice as a designer. I am an academic in the sense that I do research in, um, and, and try to produce scholarly output in, in forms of books and articles. And, um, and I'm a, yes, I'm a, I have been teaching typography, type design and visual communication in different schools. And um, yes, and at the same time, I'm an independent type designer and, and typographer. 
As said before, this type of guest series is on type and inclusion. The inequality in available resources and representation of almost any scripts or writing systems other than the Latin alphabet is a sharing point of these two implications. During the preparation for this episode, we spoke about the non-Latin term and how the type design community is skeptical about using it. We decided to share our ideas and open the conversation by talking about the discussion's background rather than ignoring the argument and only skipping the term. Could you share your opinion with us and tell us what's wrong with this term? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for bringing this up. Um, it's it's kind of been a bit of the elephant in the room in the in the last few years, and uh, just recently that has caused quite some intense debate. Um, uh, it's specifically the term that is most frequently um, talked about is non-Latin, and it. It is not an ideal term for many reasons. It's quite an unfortunate term, and I think everybody acknowledges that. I have not yet come across anybody who endorses the term, who thinks it's a great term. So I think that has to be stated from the outset. It's it's not a good term um, for obvious reasons. It bundles everything, all the scripts of the world that are not Latin in one category. So many things that have nothing in common with each other are grouped under one name. Um, and it does so in reference only to Latin. So everything is kind of measured against Latin and it's the negative, it's the non-Latin, which of course has, has negative connotations. Um, and, and there has been some very justifiable objection to that term. Now, uh, on the other hand, I think it's also important to, to recognize where this term comes from and what it, and I think if we look at it historically, it, it starts to make a little bit, bit more sense. Um, Non-Latin emerged from the overwhelming dominance of the Latin script in typography. And that is an undeniable fact. Um, even though movable type was first used uh, in East Asia, in, in China and in Korea, well before Gutenberg invented it, uh, so to speak, in, in, in Mainz in the 1450s, um, it didn't catch on as much as it did in the, the late uh, 15th and 16th century in, in Europe. And nowhere on the world it turned into the mass medium that we know from the Western world. Um, wherever you look, typography only became a mass medium in the late 18th, 19th century. And so at this stage, you look at hundreds of years of a very developed Latin typographic history, and it had, it had established preeminence in, as a medium. So from that perspective, non-Latin, everything that was not Latin, or actually better, it would be even more appropriate to talk about non-European, because um, whereas it's the distinction is between Latin and non-Latin, the... Uh, non-Latin scripts, Greek and Cyrillic, were um, catered for and were, were developed quite early on 
in, 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 in much more uh, variety than many other scripts of the world. So um, then when, when other um, scripts were starting to use typography in, mostly in the 19th century, um, the point of reference was Latin, and hence the Eurocentric or Western-centric perspective was, well, there is typography, and a small section of that that we only start to develop now is non-Latin. So, of course, all of this is still a Eurocentric perspective, so um, one can justifiably object to that. What I find important or useful to keep in mind is that all these scripts have a shared experience, and the shared experience is that they have not seen the attention and the technological support and the know-how and the, the, the history that Latin typography has had. And from a historical perspective, it can be useful to acknowledge this disparity in order to now address it and hopefully rectify it. So from my perspective, there is a narrow range where it may make sense to talk about the experience of non-Latin scripts and how they fared usually in a much underrepresented kind of way compared to Latin. And then once we have acknowledged this situation, I think that is the first step to overcome it. I think that's interesting. I was just looking uh, the other day at an estimate. There are over, uh, this is an estimate from a couple of years ago, that there are over 500,000 Latin typefaces in the world. And probably one or two orders of magnitude fewer typefaces from other scripts. All of the other scripts combined is going to be less than the number of Roman originating typefaces. And that seems to be accelerating to some degree in that for every new typeface in a script other than uh, Roman, there'll probably be a hundred Roman scripts made. Yeah, yes, there is, there is still a very, very strong imbalance. What is, what is positive is that over the last 20 or so years, there has been many other typographies, so to speak, have begun to catch up in, in some measure. Uh, of course, not in the magnitude, but they have received more attention. And, and I think that is absolutely necessary and is very much one of, one of my drivers in my work. From the typocast point of view, I should say that we admire the community's sensitivity to all problems and damages induced to various languages and societies during the technological adaptation or by other colonial forces. And one of the reasons that we started this podcast is talking about these issues and looking from different perspectives than, let's say, only the Western perspective. But in practice, it may not be possible to mention every single writing system we know without forgetting some, when we want to talk about many scripts. And it depends on the context too. Like, during a discussion about Arabic typography, we may use the term non-Arabic type. So, if we use the non-something combination, it doesn't mean that we favor a culture or language against some others. Also a segue to one of my other notes. What is the status of Arabic typography and type design compared to the Latin typography or type design? 
let's put it this way when when I started my um, my work on Arabic type design uh, as an MA student at the University of Reading there were visiting lecturers who were also um, type designers and I remember one lecturer coming in and asking me what I was doing and how come I had chosen Arabic and I told him about my interest and um, he said well that's all nice and fine but don't you expect or count on selling any of those like you're not going to make a dollar from this which was a bit odd for me as a student who only wanted to pursue this out of interest it was uh, a personal a personal cultural interest and I said yeah that's fine let's see let's see what what happens I'm just giving it a go and seeing um, seeing where I can take this and and that was in 2005 in 2005 there were two or three foundries that had any Arabic typefaces in their in their in their catalogues. I remember around that time Font Shop, the very big um, type foundry, had just added one first Arabic font to its tenth of of thousands um, Latin fonts. The main catalog was the one of of Linotype, which had by and large had been developed throughout the earlier part of the 20th, well, throughout the 20th century. There were a few new editions, but yeah, there were maybe a dozen Arabic fonts that Linotype sold at the time, and, and that was it. Then there were a few system fonts that were provided by, by Microsoft, by Apple, but it was, there was hardly anything like an Arabic type design scene community. And over the last 15 years, this has changed uh, very clearly and very much to the, to the better. So now there are uh, a handful of dedicated Arabic type design uh, foundries. It receives more attention by, by let's say, mainstream um, IT companies. So there is, there is movement. Of course, it's still far away from the breadth of, of Latin typographic choice, but the speed of, of development has been accelerating and also we start to see different voices we start to see different opinions so there is not Arabic type design and everybody agrees but there are different strands of um, approaches that have um, different ideas on how to uh, approach Arabic type design and and I think that's a that's a very interesting and positive development and I think the jury is still out which are the more successful solutions it may well be that in 50 years one can look back and say well these were some attempts but they turned out to be dead ends and these were the more successful takes but we don't know yet um, so for example what what is an arabic sans serif uh, the whole notion of a sans serif is difficult to to define in in arabic typography because there are no serifs in the latin sense to start with so we can only talk about of uh, low contrast, low modulation uh, designs. And uh, there are now very, very different interpretations of how to design a low contrast type in Arabic. And it's all very new because 20 years ago, there was barely any low contrast type. There were just high contrast Arabic typefaces that had much stronger marks of the of the um, handwriting tool. And, and so there is a a ferment, if you want, a negotiation of formal ideas that is not a done deal yet. So it's interesting. It's, it's, I think it, there, these are particularly interesting times for 
these underrepresented um, cultures of typography because there's still so much more to be done. You know, we can have the, the umpteenth sans serif in Latin that only differs all that much um, from the other one. Whereas in, in some other scripts, um, everything needs to be decided. And, and it's, it's fabulous. It's, it's very interesting and um, a, a good moment to, to work in, in, in these um, areas. It's absolutely a valid point. Sometimes in my conversations, people ask me about the serif versus sans serif in Arabic or Persian types and sometimes ask me to show them um, some examples. Mm -hmm. Even I had this conversation long ago back in Iran. But my point is, where is the serif in Arabic or Persian? These writing systems have entirely different mentalities, tools and ideas of writing, letter forms and representation. We should measure and categorize with other methods that have come out of these languages. Yes, no, absolutely. I think your your point about the structure and the modulation is is really uh, important. I know that uh, Roman typefaces, through their history, they started off. If you look at, uh, say, Jensen's typeface of fifteen hundred, it really does reflect quite strongly the pen hand, the <laughs> the writing of of humanist humanist manuscript. And it strays away from that until by the modern era, the, the modern typeface of the 1800s, like the Bodonis, they are pretty abstracted versions of that, you know, where, whereas you have thick and thin strokes that come from the pen in, say, uh, Jensen's typeface. You have thick or thin and modulating as quickly as possible between the two in the uh, Bodoni. The thing that I think that I'm always curious about is the... Industrial Revolution and all those advertising faces really made a kind of opened up the field of of Roman typefaces. And is there a, an equivalent of that in in the uh, evolution of the Arabic typeface? Thanks, Richard. I think I think that's an excellent point, and it, it connects directly with what I what I tried to talk about earlier in in reference to the terminology, the non-Latin, etc. Because the fact is that the typographic histories of most other scripts are significantly shorter than the typographic history that we know from the European tradition. So the two points that you have just evoked, they are separated by some 300 years. Well, and that's only Jensen and, and Bodoni. Um, and if you if you talk about the industrial revolution, add another 100, 150 years, and and that is exactly part of the interest and part of the ferment that is going on in in other scripts. Arabic typography was, although known, was not practiced in the Middle East for 400 years. So uh, even though um, Jewish migrants, refugees from the from the Spanish reconquest in, in, in Andalusia came to, to the Ottoman Empire and brought with them uh, movable type printing. It was not adopted by, by any um, Muslim Arabic printer in the Middle East. Uh, there were European attempts to print from the 16th century and they shipped books printed in Arabic uh, metal type in Europe, in, in Italy and later in, in Germany and in, in, in the Netherlands. And they were sent to, to, to the Middle East and nobody cared about them whatsoever. They were unacceptable. They had no 
success by any measure. And it's only in the 18th century, in, the, in, the, in 1729, that the first Muslim Arabic print shop opens in Istanbul. Um, but again, it remains on a very, very small level. It doesn't trigger a, a publishing, a, a print revolution. This only happens around the middle of the 19th century. So you get um, 400 years of complete, we don't care about this technology, and then all of a sudden in the, in the 19th century, it's being taken up by, by indigenous printers that use local, locally made Arabic typefaces, and it starts a, a printing and, and publishing revolution. But what this, what this shows is that the history that we have in Arabic typogra typography is so much shorter. So if, in a way, all those developments that had some 400, 500 years to gradually happen in the, in the European sphere are now compressed into a much shorter time span. And, and I think this is particularly pronounced now in, in the digital um, era, where, where stuff just happens more quickly and where there are, there are more parties involved, there are more agents, and, and there, is, there are the means to, do, to work more quickly, and uh, the influences travel around the globe much more quickly. And so, yes, everything is compressed into a much, much shorter space. And, and, and that's very much what I was talking about earlier when I mentioned this, this negotiation of different ideas that is happening at the moment. So, yeah, we, have, we didn't have a, a sans serif in Arabic 20 years ago. And now there are competing ideas about what a sans serif should look like. And, and at the same time, there are, of course, more traditional or traditionalistic approaches that say, well, we don't want to throw everything that we've had, throw it out the window and only get inspiration from Euro, uh, Eurocentric uh, typography, but we want to look back at our own heritage and, and see what we can use of that and um, how we can translate that for, for, um, for contemporary use. I use, the, I use the term traditionalistic, which is not quite what I meant. It's, it casts a negative light that I didn't mean to, to, to imply. I think uh, there's more like a, a harking back to original sources, let's put it that way. And, and I think that's a very, very fruitful and uh, there's a lot of potential in that approach. Yeah, something, something similar happened when the, uh, when the monotype and linotype came along and all these historical typefaces were revived, which had basically been, uh, had been gone for hundreds of years. Things like Janssen, Bambo, both faces based on the, uh, you know, from around 1500, which had really been evolved away from. But when, when the linotype came along, a bit like the, the computer, it created a market that required people to come up with new typefaces to supply the monotype and linotype machines. And they went to historical references. So perhaps something similar is happening today with the Arabic. Maybe you could expand on that. In a certain measure, I, th I think that is, that is true, only that the, the references are not so much typographic models. Like mm. what you have mentioned, right. there were already revivals of type that had right. been made. Right. That is not so much happening yet. There are some instances, but it's mainly looking back at, at the manuscript tradition um, because there is this, this break 
between the manuscript tradition and, and typography, and that's that's very much a, te- a technologically induced break in which the typography as a medium was not up to represent Arabic script with all its characteristics. Letterpress printing and movable metal type were made for the Latin script. And the Latin script is the odd one out compared to most other scripts of the world in the sense that it is extremely modular and has a fairly um, limited set of proportions. And this works very well for little bits of metal that you put next to to each other. It doesn't work so well for um, um, these little bits of metal. Don't work so well for other scripts that have other properties, and and that was the case with with Arabic. And when Arabic was was adopted to typography, it lost a lot of its uh, features that had evolved over hundreds of years of manuscript practice. Mm-hmm. So yes, now if anything, people look back at at calligraphy and see. Well, what, what was there that we've lost when, when type was introduced? And, and these, these breaks are quite interesting, again, because even though there is now Arabic typography is being practiced now for, let's say, 150 years of any, in any kind of significant um, scope, the, the evolution is not at all linear. We don't get better Arabic type and better Arabic typography with every step of technological development. Quite the contrary, I would argue. Um, when, we, when we look at the, the, the uh, foundry type that, that was used for, for handsetting, that was made for handsetting in, in Istanbul, in Beirut, in Ka- Cairo, well, they didn't make so much up, but they used it, um, in, the, in the second half of the 19th century, they used more complex and more advanced Arabic typefaces than the majority of digital Arabic typefaces that are in use now. Mm. And they just bothered to take the time and set it manually, which was a painstaking labor. And then came along mechanization, which completely wreaked havoc on all of this because the machines, again, came from the West. They were, again, made for, for the Latin script, only they were even more limiting than the system of, of movable type was because the machines had their internal logic, so especially so the linotype. Um, it, it had in its main magazine, so it had only 90 characters. So that meant any script that had to be composed on a linotype had to be reduced to 90 characters to be composed at a reasonable speed because, yes, you could have multiple magazines, but then changing them made the whole process too slow for anyone to be interesting. Um, and, and that changed the appearance of Arabic and, and many other scripts, in fact. And then, as the 20th century advanced, we, we got uh, photocomposition. And with photocomposition, the first computers came in. And there, actually, some, some phenomenal groundbreaks um, were achieved with early computers. Um, with early computers that drove photocomposition machines. But this happened in the late 80s. And in the late 80s, photocomposition was on the way out. It was about to die. And when the desktop publishing happened and everything went into personal computers, we lost a lot of um, competence, of craft knowledge. And 
in the, the first 10 to 15, maybe 20 years of the desktop revolution, the computer engineers were busy achieving um, typographic functionality for Arabic that was primitive by, for all extents and purposes. They, they had to work on making, or let's make it work to compose from right to left. Whoa, achievement. We can now compose from right to left and we can, I don't know, um, have the letters take the right position, etc. Things that were achieved on, on, on the linotype in, in hot metal in the 1960s. So even though you had this presumed advantage of digital technology, in the first 20 years it had to catch up to, uh, to achieve a level of typographic support that was there for the preceding 50 years. Mm -hmm. Sounds very exciting, but I suggest keeping some parts for the next recording and going to the top of my list. Maybe the first question I had to ask was how you become interested and then expert in the field of Arabic type design and typography. And and what was the process? Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, well, I I started my path, let's say, just in a in a fairly conventional way. I went to a graphic design uh, school here in, in in Vienna, in Austria, and in during this course, I I discovered that I was really interested in typography, and by extension, in in type design, and. Um, I wanted to pursue this further. I, I was not really taken by by corporate design and um, and advertising um, as a as a trajectory for me. So I, I thought typography is, is something that I could develop further. And so I looked for um, places where I could uh, do a master's degree in in, in type design, and uh, that led me to to the University of Reading, and its um, MA in typeface design. And um, there I had shown in a portfolio that I had produced some books, uh, small, small-scale publications in, in Persian and English, so bilingual publications. And um, with that reference in my portfolio, the, the program director, uh, Jerry Leonidas, he just encouraged me very much to pursue this further and I, I remember very much in very well in in one of the first meetings as a, as a group in which um, Jerry was emphasizing the interest and value in developing and now there comes the term not Latin um, type design um, or type design for all scripts of the world then um, he just turned to me and said and, and you are you are the one who is doing Arabic right which came as a surprise to me because <laughs> I, I, yeah, I didn't think I could do that. Uh, I had studied some Arabic in evening classes before going to Reading, just out of interest. I um, had traveled a bit in the region. My, my family had lived in Algeria when I was a little kid. Um, apparently, I started to speak Arabic, but I didn't retain too much from then. And, um, and because of this just general family background, family interest in like the, not, an, not, a, not a background of descent, but just we had lived there, we had friends from the region and um, we had an interest in various cultures and Arabic amongst them. Um, and so 
that's that's how what triggered my general interest, let's say. And when I came to Reading, I thought I would do um, I would do Cyrillic type design because I had studied Russian for eight years at school, so I was very familiar with with Cyrillic uh, script. But yeah, once once I was encouraged and and uh, put out to me that I could do that, I thought I'd give it a go and try and see see where this goes. Um, mainly because I felt if I if I don't do this now, we'll never learn it. So I might as well just try it. And um, in rating days, well, they have a very a very good approach to 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 this uh, subject in. Um, Using lots of um, uh, collections-based research to 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 show students and aspiring designers um, historical references, they are they have an excellent network of of um, designers that consult the the aspiring students on their respective um, projects, and 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 I was lucky enough to have uh, Fiona Ross as 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 supervisor too. And and she has a, a an excellent uh, track record of of type development for for various scripts amongst uh, which is Arabic and um, yes uh, in, during the course of the of the program I I was also supported and and was given feedback by by other um, Arabic designers uh, namely Kamal Mansour um, Kam, uh, Mamun Sakal um, and and all of these came together to. Uh, this project that I called Nassim, um, and and once I had finished my my course, the DMA course, I submitted the the, the design to the annual um, Type Directors Club of New York um, competition, and it was selected to to receive the certificate of excellence in type design. Yeah, that set the ball in motion for me to to take this further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a this is a good connection to the BBC project, your Nassim typeface. How you involved in the project and designed the typeface for the BBC website for the Arabic, Persian, and Urdu services? And Pashto too, I believe. Yes. Oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, yes. Um, so that's now already some ten years ago um, that in. In the summer of uh, 2010, the um, design design team of the BBC World Service approached me um, and asked me if I could give them my typeface Nassim for for testing purposes, and um, that they were in the process of doing a redesign of their of their websites and that they were interested in in trialing Nassim um, and comparing it to other typefaces um, and at the time I didn't have any retail uh, version of, of, of the fonts available. Nassim had been published in with the Tasmim um, plugin for for InDesign but that was a different format and it couldn't be um, used in any other uh, software. Uh, so I quickly put together a kind of working font that was all but ideal but I thought it would be okay for testing purposes and at the same time I didn't have very high hopes or expectations that it would be taken by the by the BBC. It was my understanding that big companies or news 
corporations are usually reluctant to to work with individual designers, especially small entities like me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and then a few weeks, I think, or maybe a couple of months later, they got in touch again and said, well, that they loved it and thought it was the best out of all the typefaces that they had tested. And that um, they would like to work with me in developing um, customized versions of Nassim that are tailored for the specific needs of their language services in the Arabic script. And um, they were um, and still are Arabic, Persian, Urdu and Pashto. And, and so we, we started a process in, in which we developed four sets of fonts of a regular and a bold weight each that um, were to be used for the websites of these language services. And maybe one detail that is quite, quite relevant about this project is that in 2010, for the first time, the so-called web fonts became... Um, a reality for web design. It was it was an idea and a, and, uh, that had been around for some time, but the browsers did not support it. And so, for the for the first fifteen years of the World Wide Web, um, or fifteen twenty five, probably twenty five, twenty five. Well, anyway. No, no, it was 15, of course, 1995 to 2010. Um, so for the first 15 years of the World Wide Web, um, designers had to rely on so-called system fonts or what was the, the technical term was the, the true type core fonts for the web as released and made available by, by the Microsoft Corporation. And um, these fonts were just a very there were very small selections of fonts that the web designers could be used because they were known to be installed in every operating system of every computer so the website that was opened on any on either a mac or a pc um, could then be displayed in the font that was installed locally on the machine and that changed in 2010 because the browsers then supported web fonts, which meant that fonts could be specified for every individual website and were served like the content of the website through the server. So they had they needed no longer be, to be installed locally. And, and that was particularly important for, for Arabic in that case, and I think for, for most other underrepresented scripts too, because it enabled a, a typographic design that oh, that was unthinkable previously. Um, the the BBC had in its previous redesign had actually even it had kind of hit this this problem because they tried to differentiate the design of the various language services. So they they knew that the aesthetic preferences of of Persian and and Arabic readers are not quite the same when it comes to typography. And they also knew that in, in Urdu, um, that the Urdu readership has different expectations again. And the problem was that whereas for Latin typography, there were five fonts to choose from, in Arabic, there were only two. 
It was either Ariel or Tahoma. Nominally, there was also Times New Roman, but Times New Roman and Ariel are identical as regards the Arabic complement, which is quite shocking by itself. And when the BBC tried to distinguish the design for these different language services in the previous redesign, they used um, Ariel for Arabic, Tahoma for Persian, and for Urdu they did something else. They had a custom font commissioned by, a, I think, a Pakistani um, design bureau. And um, because the technology was not there yet, the users that were conscious enough of that had to go and download the font file that was provided by the BBC, install it locally, and only then the web page would be displayed as intended. And of course, in terms of uh, user experience, that was an absolute nightmare. And so when 2010 came, they wanted to use web fonts for the first time. And um, so we used um, Nassim for that purpose. And uh, in close collaboration or rather consultation with the editorial teams of the different language services, we tweaked some details of the design. Um, when I designed Nassim originally, I, like during my MA in, at Reading, I had thought of it as a contemporary news typeface that is inspired by the Persian typographic tradition is probably said too much, fashion or taste, um, but without being Persian in too, too obvious a way, so that it would also be acceptable for Arabic readers. Um, and in order to now have different um, versions for these three language, uh, four language services, we took out some of the elements that were perceived to be more Persian and added some that were perceived to be more Arabic. Namely, these were um, more ligatures and more like letter variations that depended on the context for, the, for Arabic and for the Persian context to take out all of these and give certain letters a more, let's say, synthetic appearance that is not as much inspired by manuscript forms. As we've spoken before, and as you say, as you can set something in Finnish, uh, a typeface that's acceptable in Britain, Germany, Finland, there's really no difference, even though they have different histories and cultures. What is the basis of those different tastes mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in those different uh, linguistic areas? Yes, that, that is quite a, quite, it's a very good question and, and it's quite difficult to answer. Um, for, for the, let's say, the Persianate world, so the entire cultural sphere that was influenced over hundreds of years by, by the Persian culture, first of the, the Safavid and then the Mughal Empire, they developed a very uh, distinct manuscript tradition that was dominated by a specific calligraphic writing style, the Nastalik um, writing style. And that became the archetypal Persian way of writing Arabic. Um, but because for, uh, until quite recently, it was awfully difficult to reproduce Nastalik in type, it wasn't done. And when, when typography was introduced in Iran, um, the, the first typefaces were based on a different calligraphic style, namely the Nasr um, style, which 
was also used occasionally in, in Iran, but was not as strongly associated with the Iranian culture. So there you already had a, had a break of, of tradition and, and visual preference. What happened then um, is that in Iran they used certain typefaces, and I think by pure coincidence and chance, or let's say commercial ex expedience and, and, and coincidence. So these were, were metal types that, as far as I know, came from Russia. And they happened to be of a particular design that then came to be associated as specifically Iranian or Persian, just because that's what was being used. And, and then that established itself in, in the um, 1960s when original Iranian types were designed by, by um, Iranian designers who took cues on, from the existing um, typography that, that had, was practiced in Iran and gave it a, well, their own interpretation. And um, these typefaces, um, namely, uh, mainly, mainly a typeface called uh, Nazanin by a designer called Hagigi, became the, the standard image of, of, of Iranian um, typography. And, and it is, to this day, the, the most used and the most influential typeface in, in Iran. I mean, that's interesting because Garamond, I guess, is probably the archetypal Western Latin font. And why is that? Well, Garamond's designs are good, but the, the biggest printer in Europe, who was Christophe Plantin, <laughs> he used Garamond a lot. So that became that became a model for so many other typefaces. I think that's really interesting that there's kind of a Russian basis to contemporary, or at least a Russian influence mm -hmm. to contemporary uh, Persian type typographic tastes. And the same thing that really applies to to Helvetica. Helvetica, good face, sure, but Linotype really promoted it strongly in the '60s and made it widespread. And so people saw it a lot, and then it became uh, a standard, not because of any innate quality to it, mm -hmm. but because mm -hmm. Linotype promoted it so much. I mean, of course, it had to be it had to be good, or it wouldn't have been the all the promotion in the world wouldn't have done anything. But it didn't get as big as it did without having that economic promotion. So yeah, these these strands running through typeface design are are really interesting. It yes, and it's it's got a lot to do with with the with some rather mundane qualities of, of, of the printing trades. It's, there's a lot of um, emulation. It's, things are being done because someone else has done it before. And then, so how do we do this? So let's, let's have a look around. Oh, yeah, let's just copy that. And, and that, that defined many, many um, aspects of typographic history in wherever you look. Um, yeah. What, what this means for me is that there is a huge responsibility on the part of the designers to put out practice that can be emulated, well, that can be a good model, yeah, that is informed and that is not prone to introducing ways of doing things that are less than ideal. And unfortunately, that's been the case quite often. And I think one, one way to avoid that is, is through research, that one does not emulate 
whatever is being done at the moment or the current fad, but to look beyond that and preferably look into history and see, well, has it always been like that? And are there other ways of of treating text? Because that's what it's all about. We, we want to give shape to text. And and more often than not, we, we, we discover that, well, actually, you may want to reconsider current practice in light of what was done before. Sure. But you still have to consider current practice or... You can only look at what was done before by knowing what was what is being done now. It's the the two inform each other. Um, it's it's the, I don't want to advocate just um, blind um, repetition and imitation of of historical precedent. That that's the same again. But to have a, a critical understanding of how things evolved that are being done now and um, to know why. Things are the way they are. If you don't know, you cannot change how they absolutely. are. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So, absolutely, and and research research lets you do that, and and lets you lets you reconcile those those things. What is what is has become the standard, and what might be better? I always think about the you know the QWERTY keyboard we all use, which is not the ideal keyboard uh, shape uh, keyboard layout, but because it was designed by typewriter manufacturers who wanted to uh, avoid adjacent keys being hit. Here we are with a, a QWERTY or a XWERTY, whatever, whatever keyboard you use, at least in the, in, the, in the Roman environment, and it's not the ideal keyboard. You could change it a little bit, or you, could, you can decide where you're going to put new keys, but the old keys have become like, like language, like English spelling, <laughs> things that are, that are not perfect, uh, but are resistant to change, to, to radical change. Even Baskerville, Baskerville to us looks like a very standard typeface, but even the changes that Baskerville made to the Roman typeface were really rejected in, in, uh, in England where he was working and were only sort of accepted and validated in Europe where things like the Roman Dois and I guess the less conservative, maybe more radical environment allowed for typographic change that probably wouldn't have happened in, in, in England. And Baskerville's typeface, if it had just been in England, would have disappeared, never to have been heard, heard of again. Yeah, precisely. And it's, it's very much about the, the motivations that drive change. Um, if, if, if you don't know about the motivations, you have a hard time to assess the solutions that are being found. Um, and for me, the, the stark example in, in Arabic typography or type making is, is the case of simplified Arabic, um, which is a kind of Arabic that was developed based on the model of the typewriter for no other reason but economic expediency of newspapers in the 1950s. They wanted to use, well, they had to use linotypes um, because they were the fastest way of producing newspaper copy. And in order to type faster, they wanted to reduce the number of characters that were available. And so they looked at the example of the typewriter, which by virtue of its small keyboard had only 90 characters. And so they said, well, let's adopt this. Let's do this too. We can also have an, a printing type on our linotype machines that has only 90 characters. That means we can put it into one magazine and our compositors will key much faster. We can save, we can, they, they can 
do their work in less time. We don't have to pay them as much and we can produce, we have more output, we can put our newspapers out more quickly. All of this may have had its justification in the particular setting of the 1950s newspaper making. But then, because of this precedent, everybody started to copy it. And it was, oh, what do we use for news? Oh, we use simplified Arabic. And even when uh, photocomposition allowed to have more and uh, richer character sets, some manufacturers still emulated the simplified version. At Linotype, they did try to, to reevaluate and improve the existing type, but not every competitor. And so over a number of different technologies, the same concept was introduced into personal computers and became the, 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 the basis the, the, for the default Arabic typefaces that are now on, on the Windows platform since since the uh, late 90s. And that's, there's something wrong here, because if you know where this comes from, you, you may reevaluate and reassess that, well, actually, if we have now a computer that works entirely differently to a linotype hot metal line caster, maybe the typeface should also be different. I want to change the direction here to cultural and language differences. We have similar linguistic areas with different scripts and writing systems. At the same time, various languages use a script or an alphabet of a similar source or the same. We can also mention that calligraphic and writing styles are varying in cultures and during the time. Your BBC project or Nassim project is an interesting example of how a broadcasting corporation recognizes the differences between language groups using the same script and is asked to reflect it in the typeface style. But we don't see the same approach often for the languages that use the Latin-based alphabet. This is true especially on digital-based applications, like websites, messengers, digital publications, and so on. We can see a flattening effect happened for the Latin alphabet. What do you think about these differences? And maybe what can we learn from recognizing the cultural differences in using the Arabic script? I think it shows us two things. It shows that script and language are quite are distinct. Yeah, you can use the same script to write all different kinds of languages, which also means that you use the same script in very different cultures. And that is something that is quite often overlooked by the casual observer. And it also shows us that the belated adoption of typography in most parts of the world maintained a stronger local visual identity than um, was the case in the more globalized typographic world of the West, where, of course, things also used to be more regionally different. So in the uh, 1950s, Newspapers um, looked very different between France and, and Germany and the UK. But in large part, I think because of globalization, you get a flattening of, of, of visual distinctiveness because the same 
entities, the same corporations, want to look the same wherever they operate. And, and especially now that news are mainly consumed over the internet, you wouldn't make this distinction as much anymore. But in the Arabic script world that stretches from Morocco to Indonesia, because typography didn't um, set a homogenous appearance quite as strongly yet, um, there are still much more pronounced regional preferences. And that is particularly strong if we look, for example, at uh, South, South Asia, at Pakistan, uh, where as far as I know, up to, the, up to this day, there are still newspapers, like main daily newspapers, who rather than using existing fonts, they put um, images that have been typeset locally, they put images out onto their website because they can um, typeset in the Nastalik style uh, locally, but can't or couldn't do it until quite recently on their uh, respective websites. So that indicates a very strong cultural uh, um, preference for this particular uh, calligraphic style. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Also, looking at the BBC project, they decided to distinguish the typeface styles based on the languages rather than the regional typographical styles. The divergence between, let's say, the calligraphic styles of Morocco and the calligraphic styles of Iraq might be more distinct than between Iraq and Iran. Mm -hmm. But here, the language is the key for dedicating type design to their services. Indeed, and um, there are a lot of um, cultural achievements have been, if not lost, they have been hidden. And, and I think a lot of the interest that now goes back to pre-typographic times emerges from this realization that there is such a rich visual culture that is just waiting to be, to be rediscovered and adopted for contemporary purposes. So yes, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Arabic script world, there were so many different writing styles and hardly, hardly any are still widely practiced or known by the casual reader. And, and that could, of course, be changed nowadays. Of course, we could, we could use um, the Maghribi writing style from North Africa. And um, there are also there are attempts to, to create new typefaces that are not based on the predominant Nasser style, but on, on other styles. And, and I think this, um, this uh, rediscovery of, of cultural variety and richness is is actually gaining momentum because to some degree it seems that typefaces or not typefaces but script styles in arabic that used to have particular purposes or used for particular purposes of content are used now in different visual contexts like now correct me if i'm wrong because i may be wrong but i have the impression that kufic or Kufic influence styles are used for display typography quite quite often, but they're not used for text typography. And that's I, like I say that I that may be a, a misapprehension on my part, but that's the that's the impression I have. Yes, yes, I will, I, I fully agree that that is the the general uh, tendency. But maybe one caveat is that these are not Kufi, and there is nothing Kufi. Um, because it's a very bad term. Um, it's, it is, I agree with you that it is used in that sense, but even paleographers 
actually say there is no style called Kufi because we don't know what the Kufi that was written in the 8th century in Kufa in Iraq uh, looked like. We actually don't know that. Um, uh-huh. And so it's been, it's been adopted by later uh, Islamic scholars to describe something that no one's ever seen. Uh-huh. And then Western scholars adopted it from them. And um, typographers or type designers very recently adopted this term to denote anything that is quite geometric and modular. Mm. And the curious aspect is that hardly any casual Arabic reader can read the old manuscripts that are that may be called Kufi. They have mm-hmm. a very different architecture that is awfully difficult to read for, for the contemporary reader. So what all these Kufi typefaces are, they are essentially using Nasser shapes, but morph them into a kind of hybrid that borrows the rigidity, the modularity of Kufi, but maintains Nasser letter forms, um, creating a kind of a hybrid, uh, typographic hybrid. Ah, that's, that's very interesting. I had no idea. So yeah, I, I just want to say that the term is a little bit unfortunate. Um, because it, is, it, it suggests to describe something which it doesn't really. Also, again, what you said about the usage of these different types. Yes, historically, that was certainly the, the case that um, different calligraphic, different handwriting styles were predominantly used for specific purposes, especially this, in the last phase of, of Islamic manuscript culture. This became very developed in the Ottoman Empire. Um, where the Ottoman Chancery had all these different hands for different purposes. They had diff- specific styles for edicts of, of, the, of the court, and they have a specific style for the, for the land register. And then just by convention and repeated use, other styles were used more frequently for correspondence and others more frequently for the Quran. So yes, historically that was the case, but today that's, let's say, this culture is not readily accessible anymore, especially not for typographers. This, there is a very, very small group of, of trained calligraphers that are trained in, the, in this classical education that are aware of these um, um, conventions, but this is not reflected in contemporary typographic practice. And the thing about the contemporary kufi, in inverted commas, types, it's also often it can be quite misleading because uh, say for example frutiga arabic frutiga is a sans serif in the latin form it's a sans serif type that is known to be really readable and usable for a multitude of applications the arabic component is very geometric and modular and so falls into this category of contemporary Kufi typefaces. But I am skeptical if this kind of style and design does fulfill the same purpose as the original Latin frutiger that has this very broad potential um, use basis. These are, these are some of the open questions that I that I alluded to earlier, that are still in the process of being 
sussed out and negotiated. That's interesting because there is quite a parallel, I guess, to Roman, the Roman version of Italic, which started off as being a particular kind of writing style used for communications from the, the Pope or the, the Vatican within the church, the chancery style. And mm -hmm. then that became adopted eventually to be used for emphasis and things. It's parallel in that yeah. it started off with a completely different purpose and you wouldn't mix them before. And then sometime in the 1500s, it became a way you could use that chancery style as a as a means of, of emphasis or a means of uh, demarking a different kind of content, nothing to do with that original form that yeah. that came up. But yeah. but now it, it's just there. I you expect every typeface to have an italic and it's unrelated to its original purpose. Exactly. And, and, and that's, again, a reflection of the long typographic history of, of the European world, where uh, the core typeface family that we talk about now, which is a regular and an italic and a bold, in fact, mixes and bundles together four disparate writing styles and cultures. It's the, there are the Roman capitals, there is the Carolingian minuscule, there is the, the Chancellor, the, the Cancelleresca, the, the Chancellery script, and there is the 19th century boldface. And now they all are assumed to be part of one homogenous entity. And of course, that you, one should know where this is coming from to better understand it. And curiously, you know, we should also, as regards the, the mutual cultural influences, it's also worthwhile pointing out that, well, we all use Arabic numerals that were not part of the, uh, part of the, um, of the Latin and European tradition, but we adopted them from, from, from the Arabic world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And another thing that, that comes to mind is, of course, the question of the complementary style. As you, as you described, Richard, the, the italic only was added to the Roman as a, as a, for emphasis. And um, in, in the Islamic manuscript um, tradition, there was a lot of mixing of scripts, of styles for, for, for emphasis for different, for different text categories. But that was partially lost with, with typography because it was, of course, more effort to make more typefaces because essentially an italic is an additional typeface. And if you wanted to make a, another complementary for an Arabic typeface, you would have to conceive of that in the first place. So there is no Arabic italic, but when we look at the sources, when we look at, at manuscript tradition and also 19th century typography, we see that the indigenous use of the script just combined different writing styles. So, for example, it was in, in, in the 19th century, there were uh, printers using um, Nasikh as the, as the main body type and then the Ruka style as a complementary type, like an emphasis style. And, of course, that is something that could also be done today. Right, right. Even today, sometimes I see an italic version of an Arabic or a Persian typeface. There are a slanted right or left. It's an ongoing discussion about which one is the right one. Maybe the right question is not which way letters should lean toward, but which complementary style should be designed for Arabic typefaces. Oh, absolutely. That's 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 very much what I was what is um, getting at. Um, the artificial slanting is a pure product of of technology, and that that again 
harks back to what I was mentioning earlier, that you need to research before you make design decisions. And if you know that, well, the slanted Arabic has in that form has no precedent whatsoever, but it's only a product of photocomposition and later on digital tech, um, then you may see that, well, it's probably not the best solution and it would actually be much better to have a properly designed complementary style, which of course is much more work and therefore more expensive and therefore it's not being done. Although the conversation is very interesting to me, I have to be respectful of time too. So I turn to Richard. Is there anything you want to add to this episode as there will be a second part to this talk? We did have this question and we've touched on it a little bit, but I still think it's an interesting one, is with typeface design, as we practice it, if we're, if we're practicing it in, uh, in the sense of not just doing it as, as, uh, as artwork, we have clients, right, who pay for the typeface. We have users who are uh, the people who, let's say, the designers who use the typeface. And then we have the readers yeah. who are reading the typeface. And I think this came up a little bit in our earlier discussions about the BBC, is what is the role of those stakeholders in, in design? How do you, how do you uh, take those into account? Tell me, Kavi, if I'm getting too much into the next stage, but it is relevant to the, to the, the BBC project and to much of what we're talking about. So... Uh, can we ask that now or should we save that? Yes, sure, please. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that is a, a very good question and um, potentially a controversial question. Yes, the different stakeholders, I'm, I'm reluctant to put them all on the same level hmm. because reading is second nature to any literate person. Everybody who can read will just read pretty much anything thrown at them. And that does not make for a good judge of the design of the reading material that is thrown at them. Um, so I'm hesitant to give too much weight to, let's say, the, the opinion of like, like crowd-based um, opinion finding. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical of that. I don't think it can inform the design process in a very meaningful way. Let's put it that way. Is that, is that what you were referring to? I guess so, but in some sense, it is already informed by the, the previous expectations of the reader. Uh, and the example I give in my typography classes is you might design a better alphabet, and it's just a better alphabet for so many reasons. But if people don't recognize the letters, then it's not a good alphabet. If I set something in all caps, it might look awesome, but people are probably not going to read it. They're just going to look at it and say, that looks awesome. But their eyes are going to kind of glide off that all caps setting if it's a, a long setting. So in some sense, you have to deal with the expectations of the reader. As I was saying before, if I want to manufacture and sell a computer, even though the QWERTY keyboard may not be the best keyboard, I'm going to have to make it the QWERTY keyboard. So there's, there is that unavoidable reliance on the, the experience of the reader. Yes, yes, certainly. But I think that happens on a, on a very, very low level. Yeah. And that's and because that's what I was trying to, to suggest uh, at first when I said you, anything that people are thrown at, they will be reading. The threshold 
to for for a reader to consciously say well i'm not reading that is extremely low people are going to read stuff even though it if it is hard to read even though it is awful looking just because they want to get the content right yeah so this this relationship is not is not necessarily helping me to make achieve a better design because um, the information that I get well will somebody read it or not well let's let's say I, I, I really need to produce something abysmal and completely failing for people not to read it yes for sure and, and that's the thing and that's why I was saying with the all caps thing we all have some degree of choice in what to read and if your newspaper if the Titus Nemeth newspaper is set all in upper and lower case and my newspaper, the competing newspaper, is set in everything, all the text is set in all caps. I suspect that your newspaper, even though my content is better, <laughs> I will I will claim because it's my newspaper, yeah. they will read your your newspaper. So so I, I just think it's not an important part of the design, but it's still it's still kind of in there, is that the, the characters have to they have to accord with the reader's expectation of what a what a thing should look like to some degree and i i get what you're saying it has to be truly abysmal not to read it but there is some degree of choice in what people read and so you you have to start from where they are to do the change or something but but that wasn't my only question either it's also the client and the the users as i say the designers yeah. Yeah. like where what what part do they play or do they not play a part? Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, they, yeah. they obviously play a part because they're paying you, which is an important part to, <laughs> a part to play. <laughs> um, no, absolutely. And um, they can they can play a very productive and, and, and important part, I think. In, if, if you want to go back to the, to the um, project for the BBC, it's, it's probably quite typical in the sense that the client has some ideas about the formal expression that they prefer, but they don't have any language to express that in, in, in a concise kind of manner that can be translated into an actual uh, shape. And, um, and so it, a lot depends on, uh, on communication. So that's, that's what we designers ought to do constantly with our clients, that we need to try as best to understand what they are trying to tell us, um, which may not always be in a language that is that we would use when we talk between ourselves. And and there, of course, the the situation was that as you as you mentioned, the expectation very much shapes what what people um, think is best <laughs> or mm -hmm. how things ought to look like. And in, the, in that particular case, um, the, uh, a lot of the feedback that I, that I was given when I gave them, when I showed my, my suggestions, uh, when I showed them the Nassim typeface, was that the editors and journalists that were involved compared individual letter shapes to individual letter shapes of Arial. And never mind the origin of Arial and never mind its intrinsic design quality or lack thereof, that was their point of reference. And, and I had to argue why I thought my 
suggestions were potentially better. And, and that was, of course, quite a, a difficult exercise, especially as a, as a non-native, as some people like to call me, as an Austrian who works with Arabic type. I had to engage the opinions of, um, say, an Egyptian or a Syrian um, editor who worked at the BBC. And I had to argue based on my, what I had learned about the script and about typography, whereas they would argue based on their upbringing and what, what they know just by, by virtue of having spoken and learned Arabic from, from childhood. And these are not necessarily compatible because these are very, very different um, kinds of expertise. Absolutely. And so, in some sense, the role they pay, play can be somewhat of an obstructionist one in some cases, I guess, because they don't, because, because they have this ex experience, the kind of thing I was alluding to before, they have certain expectations, they're used to the aerial, so they think of aerial as the model and think about how your typeface compares in their minds favorably or unfavorably to, to aerial. Yes. And that really brings up an important part of, of the designer having to not just go, okay, <laughs> whatever you like, I'll make it look more like Ariel. It is the role of the designer to to defend and and promote those decisions that they make. So I, I think that that role that they're playing is what I, when I said the role, I'm not saying necessarily contributing role mm -hmm. in, entirely, but it's a role that you have to you have to deal with. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean in, in the case of the project with the BBC, of course, this was on one hand, it was the feedback of, of, the, of the journalistic team. Uh, on the other hand, of course, I dealt with the design team who had chosen my typeface in the first place and thought it was good. Um, and they backed my suggestions and decisions. And, and incidentally, the, the, the two designers that, that I worked with were um, a Lebanese woman and, and a Turkish um, man. And um, so their expertise was on one hand like the the creative director was of, of Turkish origin but he didn't know about the Arabic script but his designer was Lebanese so she was a native speaker and a designer and and she had chosen Nassim as a as superior to other typefaces um, and of course that gives it that gave it credibility also um, facing the the, the the feedback from 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 the journalistic um, side. Um, what you what you mentioned about having to argue and to demonstrate, yes, very much so. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that as a as someone who's come to the Arabic script world from the outside, I have a constant need to justify my position anyway, which is a is a challenge and a, and an interesting and a good challenge in many ways. And it leads me also to some. Some curious and, and and quite funny moments where um, I remember when I when I taught in Morocco, at some point um, one of the students uh, we were doing basic introduction to to, uh, to type design and we used um, we started with some pixel uh, fonts and he was he was drawing a letter shape he was constructing a letter shape with pixels that does not exist in Arabic yeah it's Imagine it's like a he did what would be the equivalent of taking a capital R and adding another 
a diagonal leg on the left side. Yeah? A, a letter form that does not exist. Mm. But Sounds a, a bit Russian. but <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Oh, and he, well, in Arabic, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And so it was a, a, a ta, and he added a bowl, like a scene bowl to the ta. Mm. And he argued with me and said, no, what do you know? I know better. <laughs> Look, I'm Moroccan. <laughs> yeah? And I had to show him this letter does not exist. And of course, he was too proud to admit that he was mortified, but I think he was. And yep, I mean, that's, that's again what I was trying to say earlier, the... The, the native competence is a very different one to the, to the specific learned type design typographic competence because mm -hmm. else you wouldn't need type designers or typographers if anybody who spoke a language was also a type designer or typographer in whatever language he happens to speak or have learned uh, from, from childhood, then yeah, then there wouldn't be such a profession. Yeah, good answer. Before closing this episode, is there anything you want to add, or did we miss some points? Well, we haven't we haven't raised uh, that whole thing of Latinization. Yes, exactly. That I mean a little bit, but not explicitly. That's an essential question for me, and I highlighted my notes to ask it for the second conversation. And Richard? No, I think that's I think that's pretty much what I had uh, on what I was thinking from from the notes that we had. Thank you both very much for being here and for the conversation. I feel pleased to start the typocast and having you two for the first episode. I enjoyed every minute of this conversation. Titus, have a good afternoon in Austria and Richard, have a good day in Toronto and talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kave and Richard. And uh, thanks for organizing it, making it all happen. And um, yes, I also very much enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank, thanks, Titus and Kaveh. And Titus, it's an education speaking to you. I, I find out things that I had no idea about. So thanks, thanks for that. Thanks, it means a lot. It was episode 19 of Quantization, Arabic type with Titus Nemet. We want to thank Titus and Richard for being part of this conversation. And a special thank to Marshall Bureau for composing all tracks for quantization. Please share your comments with us. Check out our website, quantization.ca, for more discussions and full transcripts. And come back for the second part of this episode. Quantization Podcast.